Romans chapter 14. Romans 14. We have finished studying this chapter, and thus all 14 of the previous chapters before this, or 13 previous chapters before this, in our study of the book of Romans, we're actually racing pretty, pretty fast toward the end of this study. But what we've done at each um, conclusion of chapters is something that I want to confess to you was more for me than for you, but I trust it's been beneficial. And that was to stop after each chapter and look back at the whole chapter as a summary to see the big picture of what's being said. And I think it's important to review often because sometimes you need to see the whole map and not just the next turn. Uh, I, uh, I'm still trying to learn how to use the app, uh, the map apps on my uh, phone. There seem to be two competing map apps that argue over my attention. I don't know why. I don't know how. And please don't stand in line to tell me where afterwards because I won't understand. Um, it's always interesting because one of the maps, I can kind of zoom out and see the whole route. and It's helpful. And the other only lets me see the next turn. And it's pretty frustrating. It's important to have both perspectives. And what we're doing is we go verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph through the book of Romans is to see puzzle pieces that become more focused and more understood when we see the whole picture. We finished Romans 14. Let me read that for us. And I want you to listen to it as one complete unit of thought. Romans chapter 14. Paul writes, now accept the one who is weak in faith. You might say welcome the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does it so, does so for the Lord. For he give thank, gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks you can say also to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother. Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all stand before the judgment seat. We will stand before the judgment seat 
of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have Have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. I wonder how you would answer this simple question. I'd love to have lunch, have a meal, and just ask this question. It, it would be an awkward question to ask. It would be a more awkward question maybe to answer. What's your biggest problem? Just think about that. What's your biggest problem? I mean, you can think of a host of things. Most of what we would identify as our biggest problems involve something or someone that's not us. Can I answer that for you and for me? I think every sin we commit is somehow rooted in a major sin that engulfs all others. That sin simply is selfishness. It's a humbling exercise to stop and consider all that we do, and how it's not difficult to find selfishness at the root and the heart of most of the decisions that play into our bigger decisions. From the most instinctive decision to get the best parking spot and beat that person to it, right? To our most elaborate plans to coerce others for ourselves and our gain, selfishness is pervasive in our worldview as much as breathing is to our existence. If you don't believe that, let me ask you. In fact, let me ask you anyway. Go volunteer in the three and four-year-olds downstairs. 
and see if you can see intuitive, instinctual selfishness. You don't have to teach little children how to be selfish, do you? What's one of the first words they learn? Mine. Paul understood this. He's built 13 chapters of theology, begun in chapter 12 to apply it by telling us we need to be transformed into the image of Christ and away from our association with worldly values because of our understanding of the gospel. And that has very practical applications in who we are and what we do and what we think and what we decide. Chapter 14 is not here by mistake in its order. 11 chapters of theology. Chapter 12, be transformed. Chapter 13, learn to to serve one another. Learn to be a good citizen. And then he turns in chapter 14 and identifies a problem. The problem is selfishness. Now let me just say before we dive into the summary that selfishness, I think, is probably what inhibits us most from the most central task of any church member, which is to love one another. Jesus said we cannot even have a viable, respectable, incredible evangelistic ministry unless we're loving one another. Remember John 13, 35? By this, all men will know you love me. How will they know that we love him? If we love one another. There was a problem loving one another in the Italian church here at Rome. God was saving Jews and God was saving Gentiles who had come from radically different backgrounds. Paganism and sometimes a superstitious understanding of the Old Testament law. They were being confronted. How do you relate to one another? I mean, how do you take a Roman citizen whose primary protein source was pork and have them have a potluck with your Jewish friends who are just converted, who've been taught their whole life that that's condemned by God to eat. To rightly understand this chapter, we have to remember the original context. We studied this briefly in the previous uh, studies. Jews and Gentiles were living together now in Rome. Some of the Jewish believers had dietary hangups about eating food that was declared to be unclean. That's why he uses the word unclean and clean. By the law. And yet, in Acts chapter 10, remember, God puts Peter into a a state where he sees a vision, trance-like state, where he speaks directly to him, drops a sheet with some divine PowerPoint or video, and shows him unclean animals and tells Peter, who is a Jew of Jews, rise, kill, and eat. And the point was, you are no longer identified as the people of God by your dietary restrictions. It doesn't matter what you eat. If God made it edible, eat it. You're to be known by being transformed, Romans 12, 1 and 2, by the power of the gospel. Now, Gentiles had no issue with these foods that were forbidden by the law, and yet they were having close fellowship and meals with these Jews all the time. This was causing a host of problems, judging one another, looking down on each other with contempt, ultimately not loving one another by being 
selfish. Saying, my way is the right way. Jews looking at these Gentiles and saying, how can you eat something that God said is unclean when God also said it was now clean? Gentiles looking at Jews and saying, you're weird in the way you eat. This is a delicious pork chop. Why would you not want this? It also came to the we saw in this text uh, the, the observance of days. Remember the Jews had festivals and celebrations and harvest days and um, festival days that they would uh, associate with different calendar, uh, Jewish calendar events and the Sabbath itself. And they had a hang up about doing certain things on certain days and the Gentiles didn't. It was a collision of areas basically informed by their pasts. Now, as we said, there's two ways that God leads a believer. By direct black and white command, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, very clear. But then there are also categories that we have to make decisions on that the Bible gives us principles about but doesn't give us direct information on the application of. Who to marry, where to work, where to go to school, what to study. And yet the Bible does inform how we make those decisions. Well, when it comes to gray areas or liberties, now I'll distinguish those in a moment, gray areas or liberties, we have to ask, what do we do when it's not clearly identified in Scripture? You face this all the time. We've talked about these in the previous weeks. What kind of music is it okay for a Christian to listen to? What can a Christian do or not do on a Sunday? What entertainment is suitable for a believer? I remember my grandmom talking about the theater where Satan lives. Can a believer, should a believer drink alcoholic beverages? Where should a Christian send their children to school? How many children should a believer have? Can a man and, uh, excuse me, can a wife and a mother work outside the home? How much and under what conditions? Is it okay to possess luxury items, nice homes, nice clothes, a nice car? What about Halloween? What about voting? How long can your hair be? How much makeup can you use? Even the color of your socks. If you want to have your sensibilities stressed and tested, just be around my friend Aaron Johnson and his sock collection. These are gray areas, so they should be Anyway, that won't go there. It goes on and on. Breastfeeding, birth control, circumcision, eating gluten and dairy and calories and meat and water, all of these things. Here's the problem. Some of these gray areas can have serious and non-helpful effects on Christian brothers and sisters. Now, I want to make a distinction from something I said a couple weeks ago that was a little bit confusing. There are some gray areas that need to be considered as to how they will affect others, and Paul addresses those. If you do something that makes someone else do something for which they would feel their conscience pricked about, that's a problem. But some gray areas you can have different preferences and, and uh, opinions about, which may not influence someone. Where you send your kids to school, a public school, private school, parochial school, uh, home school, uh, boarding school, um, 
It doesn't mean you defer on all your preferences, but it does mean we relate to one another in a God-honoring way. But there are things like drinking or participation in certain entertainment that can have someone do what you did and then feel their conscience violated after the participation in. And 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10 addresses this, and Paul says that's a serious issue. So conscience is at stake, but not yours. It's those around you is his point. If the Bible is our guide, then we should expect the word of God to address these and other issues, and it does, but not necessarily in how we might think. It addresses them by saying simply this, are you being selfish? If I were to summarize 1 Corinthians 14, I would say this, are you being selfish? And if so, stop. So let's look at this chapter, very high altitude. We've broken it down, but very high altitude. And and we we said there's two big parts, remember? The first is don't act like God by judging others. Being the judge of what people do and don't do, and we're the standard. That's, That's a violation of God's intention. The other side is don't act like Satan by tempting others and being uh, flaunting what you enjoy in your Christian liberties. Well, I've boiled this down just to get a handle on the chapter theologically and, and from a kind of a summary aspect by asking five questions to determine, excuse me, to evaluate my view and practice of Christian liberties. Five questions. This would be a great thing for you to ask each other today at lunch or tonight at, at dinner or maybe uh, pull each other aside at the at the picnics this afternoon, and just ask yourself five questions to evaluate my view and my practice of Christian liberties. I don't think this passage tells us what to do and think as much as it tells us how to think. First question is this. Can I distinguish the strong and the weak regarding liberties? Do I understand there's a difference? Can I distinguish strength or the strong, the mature, and weak or the immature in regard to liberties? Not everyone is at the same place in their spiritual maturity. Some are stronger and more mature than others. Others are less so. And the goal is that all of us are becoming more mature. If you find yourself weak, the point is not to flaunt that and to show everybody that you're legalistic on these issues. The point is to grow. Become more mature. And if you're more mature, is to be patient with those who haven't received the insight that you have from the Lord about these issues. Paul underlines a principle that should be obvious. Those who are strong, those who are mature, ought to be the ones who are the most wise and the most gracious and the most kind and the most considerate in their use of Christian liberties. I wish I could tell you that I've seen this as a norm. Yes, I've seen many who are gracious and kind and considerate in their mature use of liberties, but far too often I've seen the opposite. Those who can enjoy their liberties can easily be flippant, inconsiderate, even arrogant in their enjoyment of Christian liberties. Look at these first three verses again. Except the one who is weak or immature in faith. 
Notice it doesn't say practice, it's faith. It's, it's their theological worldview. But not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinion. Don't be a judge. One person has faith that he can eat all things. This is, he can enjoy the, uh, uh, the liberties that God has given him, whether it's eating pork or things that were forbidden by the law. But he who is weak eats vegetables only. He just stays completely away from it. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats because God has accepted him. What he's saying is if they're spiritual siblings, if God has accepted us on the basis of belief and faith in his son, who are we to be the judges of their souls, their lives, and taking the place of God? The real issue is passing judgment upon them. Can you distinguish being strong or weak? I want to confess something to you. This is a little embarrassing, but uh, I learned in, when I was in seminary, don't be the hero of all your own stories as a preacher. I am not the hero of this story. Many years ago, I was um, in Nevada with some friends, and uh, we were going through to eat a, a buffet that was really cheap. And uh, there was a slot machine there, and friend says, Hey, let's, four quarters. Let's just do four quarters in this slot machine. Now, I knew that I spent a dollar on far stupider things. I just spent a dollar that day on a Coke Zero. And I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. So I, I, I knew that technically putting four quarters in here, I mean, really. But I couldn't do it. <laughs> I was raised in a church that said, gambling, send you to hell. And all, I mean, I just, I had the quarter in my hands. My hands were sweating. I wanted, and I just, I couldn't. It was wrong. It was, I was just weak. Well, my friend said, I'll take those dollars. Boom, 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 those quarters, and did the whole thing. I, I but I remember walking away, and this is embarrassing to tell you, wrestling with this anxiety in me, like, ah. And I really felt like if I had done that, that would have been wrong for me because I was so messed up in my thinking. I think I probably still am a little bit that way. I was just so afraid of it, my, my conscience. Now, let me spin the illustration a little bit. What if the people I was with had said, Ah, oh, come on, you gotta do it. You're a coward. You're free in Christ. You gotta do it. And I had done that and then went to bed that night feeling sick at my stomach for violating my conscience. That's a problem. Are you weak in anything? Now, same illustration. Would it have been right for me to say, you just wasted a dollar. You could have given that to a missionary. Well, if we use that principle, what are you gonna do this afternoon with your money? Judging is at the issue here, but also not violating your conscience. In fact, the key principles articulated, look down the, the page in chapter 15, verse 1. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just be selfish. Please, who? Ourselves. So do you understand the distinction between mature and immature, strong and weak? Can, can you see that? Second question, number two. Am I sensitive to judging versus accepting others' views of liberties? 
This gets into, we just hinted at that, being the judge. If you read verse four and following, who are you to judge? Stop right there. Who are you to be the judge? This is the real issue. Verses four to 13 highlight this. Who are you, who am I, to assume that my preferences and my understanding of the limits of Christian liberties and the limits of Christian enjoyment is right because it's my view. Now this is, look, this is hard for, for me. And I, I'll bring up the, the, the question, the, the issue that everyone's talking about. Alcohol is a, is a difficult thing for me. I don't think I'm a weaker brother. I can be around people who are drinking not to the point of drunkenness and not, be, not stumble. But it's a very sensitive issue because of um, family I grew up in, friends who I've seen, one of my best friends in high school who was drinking and crossed the line and killed a family. These are hard issues for me and it's difficult, I gotta admit, I have to process all that's come into my mind that causes me to think and where is the Bible in helping me think through these issues? And the question isn't what we believe before it's are we judging? That's Paul's point in verses four to 13. The admonition is to be growing in the ability to accept others who do not share your preferences and views on liberties and gray areas. We spent a lot of time on that in our previous studies. Are we judging or accepting others? If they're sinful, we confront them. If they're not, we love them. Number three. Does my liberty build up or tear down my spiritual siblings? This is really the crux of being selfish. Does my exercise or experience or enjoyment of participation in a Christian liberty, that's something that's not forbidden or necessarily extolled in the scriptures, does it build up or does it tear down my spiritual siblings? Look at verse 15. If because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to to love. Now, we find out a principle here. We're supposed to be walking according to what? To, to, to love, not of ourselves, to love others. Verses 15 to 21 raise the question of whether we are rightly calculating the effects of our actions on others. Let me answer Cain's question in a way that he would not have appreciated. Remember when Cain was caught by the Lord and he had killed Abel? What did Cain say to God? Am I responsible for my brother? Am I my brother's keeper? You know what the answer to that question is? Actually, yes, you are. Yes, you are. And the point of this chapter with regard to liberties, and this isn't the don't ever go to a movie, don't drink sermon. This is the look at our heart sermon. The point is if what you're doing tears down someone's faith, causes them to be confused, causes them to possibly, as 1 Corinthians 8 will tell you, 
follow your example and sin against their conscience, you're tearing down and not building up. Verse 20 is haunting to me. Think about this. Do not tear down the work of God, you can say, for the sake of a liberty or a food. That potential is frightening. That we could tear down the work of God in the life or mind of a less mature, weaker brother or sister by doing things in their presence that would cause them to stumble. Verse 20 would be a great verse to memorize, meditate upon, and apply. Let's ask a fourth question, just kind of summarizing these principles. Does my maturity of insight, this is speaking to the stronger, does my maturity of insight hurt, inflict hurt, inflict damage, emotional trauma, inflict hurt on those less mature? This is incredible to me because he doesn't just say if you cause them to sin, he says if you hurt them. A subsection of the previous question is found in verse 15. He says, not only is it possible to tear down the work of God in another, it's wrong to hurt another blood-bought soul owned by the Lord Jesus. Look at the last phrase of verse 23. It's the exclamation point. Whatever is not from faith is sin. If our decisions and actions are not motivated by our faith, our love, our knowledge of Jesus, his gospel, whatever it is, is of sin. Said another way, faith and maturity would never motivate someone to hurt or damage another's walk with the Lord by our use and enjoyment, participation of and in Christian liberty. And then this is the hardest question in the chapter. This is the hardest question of this entire section and of this issue. Number five, am I willing to defer the enjoyment of liberty for the sake of a brother? How clear is verse 21? It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. This is the hard principle of deferring and denying for the sake of others. Now, in order to fully understand this, I, I, I resisted doing a full uh, cross-reference and exposition of 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. I really want to ask you, really need you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 for a moment and see what Paul said to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's a short chapter. It's critically important because we see Paul in his own experience explain his own understanding of how this applies. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it's just 13 verses. But listen to what he says. This is in reference to meat offered to idols, which is another issue. Not just pork or things forbidden by the law, but some people would go, remember the ancient Near East, the Roman culture, the best animals were brought into sacrifice to the gods at the temple. They would sacrifice them, uh, butcher them, and behind the temple, they would then sell the meat. 
It was good meat. Now, for some people, that was an issue. I don't think that would have been an issue for me, honestly, or it certainly wasn't for Paul. But that really bothered some others. This is what he says about this. Now, concerning the things sacrificed to idols, we know that all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. He says, what you know doesn't matter, that it's not really, there's not really an idol in there. Love matters more than what you know. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known what he ought to know. But if he loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. He says, this is ridiculous. They were doing a little acting, a little play. They sacrificed, prayed a prayer to know God, and then they sold the meat, and the steak was good. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, this is in the, the mythological folklore, yet there is but one true and living God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, however, not everybody gets it. Not all men have this knowledge but some being accustomed to the idol until now. Remember in, for, in Romans 14, he's talking about being sensitive to the Jews who are looking at the superstitious understanding of the laws, dietary restrictions. Now he's talking about the Gentiles who used to go sacrifice to Diana and now are bothered that they're eating meat that was sacrificed there. They're accustomed to the idol until now. Eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. But... Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do. In other words, don't brag about being a legalist. Don't brag about being a libertarian. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Same language. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple will not his conscience, if he's weak, be strengthened to eat himself things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. I, I just, verse 11 is just penetrating. Christ died for this brother and you're being inconsiderate and unwise? And so, by sinning against the brethren, wounding their conscience when it is weak, look at this, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll become a vegetarian. I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. There's the principle. There's the principle. Am I willing to defer the enjoyment of liberty for the sake of a brother? If you keep going in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. That's what he's saying. Back to Romans. So how do we put all this together? Well, I'm always encouraged at 
the gift of the clarity of Scripture and the Holy Spirit, who didn't leave it to us to stick the dismount and didn't leave it to us to make the conclusion and the final application. Look at Romans 15. We'll be here soon. Verses five and six. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? How can we be unified? How can we be together? Those whose conscience is free and those whose consciences are bound. How can we be together? Verses five and six come after verse one. We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Can I just say this? I think Paul is saying those who are mature in the church ought to step up and give leadership. And the leadership is selfless service, kindness, consideration, graciousness. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, and if you're astute, and I've seen you be so, I know that you're saying, okay, what does that really mean? Does that mean I can't have wine on my anniversary? Does that really mean I can't have a, a, a beer at this? Does it really mean that I can't go to the movie? Does it really mean? It doesn't say. It doesn't say. You know what it says? How does it affect your brother? Does this mean we do things in secret or private? Maybe. Does it mean that we have a life that we intentionally live in front of those who are weak for their consciences? Certainly. I just love the the elasticity of this passage. It doesn't give us the right to become legalists and it doesn't give us the right to become libertines. In fact, if you find yourself in the weak legalistic camp, you ought to be convicted. And if you find yourself in the strong libertine camp, you ought to be convicted as well. Wisdom and deference and consideration and the end of verse 23, faith. That's what comes to play in this. Had a great discussion with someone after we finished uh, the exposition of Romans 14 who was a little bit playfully frustrated with me and just said, but you didn't tell us what we should do or not do. (laughs) And you're right, because this passage says some things to do and what not to do, but the specific applications are left to maturity and wisdom. How do you work that out? I would work that out with your mature friends. I'll work that out with your pastors and elders and care group leaders and your your friends who love the same Savior you do. I would ask questions of people who might be offended that you might be surprised by. That group of people I was with in Nevada were shocked. I was a pastor at the time and I was so conflicted and I really feel like, and please forgive me, pray for me, I, I know I'm weak, I really felt like had I thrown that quarter in that machine, the pit in my stomach and the sickness I felt would not have been satisfied. It would have been intensified. 
Now, I wasn't bothered by the other people throwing a dollar, four quarters in a machine. And gambling is a whole, whole other sermon, by the way. That's, that's not this sermon. I was surprised by how immature I was on that. But I also recognized I needed to be very careful that I didn't do something my conscience would have come back and bit me on. Sensitivity, discussion, prayer, deferring, refusing to judge, refusing to look with contempt. This all comes back to not being selfish. And what's the central feature of the gospel? If anyone, uh, Leslie wants to follow me, let him deny who? Himself. Take up his cross and follow me. So, let's summarize it. The issue with Christian liberties is conscience. But it's not yours. It's the people around you. It's for the weak to say, I think that they do something I'm not willing and ready to do, but I still love them and know that they're accepted by God. It's the strong saying, I'm not gonna tempt or lead the weak in a way that would cause them to stumble, that might tear down their faith and their, their innocent understanding in this matter. It's, it's so much ironed out, I think, by good, biblically governed Christian communication we're talking to each other about this. I think this chapter can frustrate a lot of people. In fact, it should frustrate in a good way, agitate our lack of sanctification no matter whether we're strong or weak, mature or immature. But I love what he says that he's been accepted by God. It goes back to the gospel. It goes back to do we believe who Jesus is, the Son of God, what he did, lived a perfect life and taught truth from God and represented God, died a sacrificial death in the place of, as, as a substitute for those who would believe in God and his righteousness in Christ and gave us his righteousness by faith and rose after being dead three days. That's what's important. And that should feed maturity in ways that give us, here's the word, wisdom in these issues, not judgment, legalism, or looking to others with contempt. So be careful if you're those who take the place of God, judging, and be careful if you're those who take the place of Satan by tempting. These are serious, serious issues to consider.